Drops of sun splinter through the single-pane glass of the antique windows of the sprawling brick complex. You watch the sun's reach on the floor in your building wane as it sets over the city. You find yourself watching the process, almost in a meditative state more often, and you're not sure if it's the fact that streaming services are now spotty at best, or if it's simply because it's a reminder that nature doesn't care about urban standards of living. Violence has ramped up considerably lately. You'd still define it as mostly safe, but much like how you're mostly okay after a hard fall after 30 compared to when you were 18, you decide to mitigate the risk and stay indoors at dusk. Cigarettes were hard to quit again. The hardest part was that you didn't have much say in the matter. You couldn't really find them anymore. The ones you did come across were so awful you felt like Pavlov's dog, drawn to them even though you know you hated them. It was even harder because of the fact that your worries about cancer seemed so far off and distant it wasn't even a consideration anymore. You glanced back to the park where you'd seen those punk kids a few months back. Someone had burnt down their sign, and you know who it probably was, and whatever work they had done was lost, a distant memory. The resistance starts. What the fuck was it? You can't even remember anymore. You're not sure if you can't remember or if you can't build up the brain power to work through the synapses in your brain to find the information, and whether or not that is because you just can't care about anything anymore, or if your shitty diet of canned and bagged foods has fried your body from doing anything remotely above meander around the apartment and talk to the folks in the neighborhood. It's funny how you didn't know anyone around you before. When you had enough money to do things and food to share, you spent your time watching Netflix and going on Tinder dates. Okay, a couple dates. Mostly watching Netflix. Let's be fair. In the years you've been in this small building, there are only a couple dozen units. The only person you had gotten to know was Louise, a melancholic woman with a hunch who had always dropped her groceries down the stairs. For some reason, she would buy loads of bananas, almost as though she tempted fate, knowing full well she would likely be making banana bread instead of ever eating them. After a particularly bad day of work, as you had walked up the stairs, you had kicked an apple that had fallen out of her grocery bag. She carried those reusable bags that were bright pink with baby blue objects all over it. They kind of looked like four-leaf clovers, but they were definitely supposed to be something else. Her hand shook as she saw you launch the apple against the brick wall lining the metal stairwell, not because of anger, but the arthritis. Sounds like you're having a worse day than me. Let me know when you want a melon, she had said. You struck up an odd adoration for her. Despite her inability to stand up straight, to open her front door in less than three minutes, and her clear early onset Alzheimer's, she was, well, wholesome. While she was never upset or mad, she always carried a sense of fate along with her. The fate of someone who had accepted things didn't end the way she had wanted, and there was no reason to be angry anymore, but no reason for joy either. The building was full of stories like this. It was no surprise that the folks in the building had lives, of course, but it was easy to imagine them as flat characters in a book giving just enough depth to add authenticity but with no meaningful impact to the narrative. They existed in as much as you needed them to exist. You lived in an apartment building, 
There should be other people living there as well, right? That's as far as you'd ever put thought into the prospect. Her door had been left open for some months now. Someone had cleared out her pantry. You had never found out what had happened to her. It was early on, and the fear of collapse had weighed heavily. Fear not like a blanket, but like binoculars focusing myopically on life and death. Fortunately or unfortunately, that state of fear isn't sustainable. You learned to live with the way things were, and so did everyone else. We've come a long way from a society that couldn't live without the internet for more than 15 minutes, you think. In a lot of ways, folks had come a long way. Those neighbors fighting about their failed plants in the yard a few months back. Their garden's still awful, but you've gotten to know them. They're good people, and one of them, Greg, a mustachioed Greek with permanent 5 o'clock shadow, had taught you how to make coffee with acorns. You're not fooling anyone into thinking it's Starbucks, but it gets the job done. Silver linings, right? The world is collapsing, but we've got silver linings. You close the window. It's November and the nights are already getting cold. There's oil in the tank, if no one siphoned it, and you've put off turning on the heat, and have been operating without hot water to conserve what's there. And tonight's not going to be the first night it kicks on. Surviving during the summer and fall was one thing, but the cold creeps like darkness into every crevice. You check the time, 6pm. Greg had asked you over for dinner, and you sift through the pantry to see what you can bring. These times are strange. Strange indeed. Hey folks, thanks for coming back. This is Andy from the Poor Proles Almanac, and we're jumping into part two on soil. If this is your first time listening to us, we highly recommend going to the first couple episodes and checking those out as they frame up this conversation. And if you're enjoying what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon, Ko-Fi, and Venmo. Our Patreons get access to some extended clips from our interview series, as well as a few early release episodes, and also a mini-series that we call The Prologues, where we talk about peripheral content, everything from Joel Saladin to Infinity Seeds. And if that sounds interesting to you, go support us on Patreon and check that out. To refresh your memory very quickly, we had talked about the components of soil in the previous episode. That is, the dirt, which is clay, silt, or sand, how that impacts drainage, aeration, and how they impacted the biology, which is primarily fungi, bacteria, and microorganisms in the soil. The relationships between these three living things in the soil largely impacts plants' ability to absorb water, oxygen, and nutrients. We had also covered a bit about ratios of fungi to bacteria and how that impacts the plants growing in the soil, as well as why there are certain succession patterns in the soil. Why weeds seem to be the only things that will grow in compact soil and not your new flowers and so on. So hopefully all this is starting to come back to you. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about soil disturbances, specifically the no-till revolution, which, despite the fact that my grandfather would have my head for suggesting that I don't till the garden, has actually gained quite a bit of ground over the past few decades. Nietzsche has made a point that areas that are meant to experience massive disruption, think like fire-prone areas, regions around volcanoes, 
and so on, those areas actually do pretty well dealing with those disturbances. But tilling, that's not something we see in a natural environment. Although it does have some place in our toolbox of things that we can do on a landscape, it's not something we see in nature and it's not something that we should consider as a necessary process. Tilling tends to kill the things in the soil, and we're trying to do the opposite of that. If you think of the web of life that's created within the soil, there's not a lot of benefit to pulling it apart and then waiting for nature to try to put it back together. So not only does no-till help the soil, it helps those beneficial insects. In a no-till farm, for example, studies have shown that they will support up to three times more native species, like local bees. Now all this can kind of get wrapped into this term called soil organic matter, or SOM, which you might hear if you listen to ecologists in your free time, and what that means is what percentage of your soil is organic matter at any given time. A typical forest, if you dug up a big bucket of soil, is about 4.3 SOM, versus a typical annual crop field, which is usually around 1.5%. There's a fun test you can do called the cup test. Actually, I don't really know what it's called. If you know, let me know. I've just heard people talk about it a lot and tried it myself. What you do is drop some monocrop soil in a cup and the unturned soil in another cup and see how they react with water. What you'll notice is the cup full of no-till soil drops almost completely to the bottom and stays separated from the water while the tilled soil will immediately make the water look murky and the material fills the cup. And in a perfect world, these two soils would be made up pretty much of the same exact minerals. So what's the difference? The life within the soils, the fungi, for example, produce glamelin, which is essentially a glue to keep their network together, which actually keeps the soil together as a mass, practically. Whereas the tilled soil has never developed those fungi structures, or biological community, it's easily separated. So that might not make complete sense in a way, because while we do understand that plants need fungi and bacteria to make nutrients absorbable, there should be some in tilled soil, right? Plants survive. So what's happened? Well, let's talk about that bacteria to fungi process again. They need certain things to be able to create a habitable environment, right? Water, insoluble nutrients, oxygen. What happens when you till? You aerate the soil to create easy access for the plant's root structure to get deep into the soil and to bring up new nutrients from deep within the soil. Further, the process destroys those networks and what happens is all the nutrients within the bacteria and fungi that don't survive become absorbable by the plants at the cost of the biological community. So that's the whole idea, right? We're getting access to nutrients in a couple different ways. However, one thing that does happen from this process, the reason why this only works for the first few years, is because it over-aerates the soil. When you till, that exposure spurs lots of activity that starts breaking down the carbon and releases it back into the air. Not only does it spur massive biological activity because of this, It also allows all the bacteria and fungi that die to be eaten by the other bacteria, fungi, and nematodes, and other microanthropods that are within the soil. Like I said, much of the bacteria and fungi die from this process, 
And that's part of what stimulates the plant's ability to access these nutrients. When the soil hits 113 degrees Fahrenheit, species in the soil start dying. And by 130 degrees, almost all of the moisture in the soil is lost. At 140 degrees, the soil bacteria is completely dead. Anyone that's been outside and touched a dark road on an 80 degree day knows how quickly a dark surface can heat up. And that's what's happening to your soil. Even if you cover your soil so it doesn't bake in the sun, you've created massive amounts of biological life in your soil that now requires new massive amounts of inputs to sustain itself. Think of it this way. By killing off so many different things, you've created a feast for the things that eat those dead species, the bacteria, the fungi, and so on. But that one-time amount of food is only going to be available one time. This is why first-time gardeners will till and have a great garden for the first year or two, and by years three and four, they can't figure out what they're doing wrong because they've always done well. You've used up all of the content in the soil quickly, like opening up the flue on your wood stove, and now there's nothing left to keep that blaze going. Now there's one thing here that's not totally important. I mean, it is in a sense, but really, it's kind of a tangent, and it's the amount of organic matter that you need in your soil. The average amount of SOM in your soil is around 4% or so, but it's important to understand why some soils are more challenging to make healthy. And by some soils, I mean primarily clay soils, although sandy soils do have their own challenges. There's two challenges with clay soil. The first is that it actually has some magnetic properties, and these properties can create challenges in nutrient absorption for your plants and fungi, and the second has to do with the amount of organic matter you need. A sandy soil with very little clay or silt may only need around 2% organic matter to be healthy, and that's largely because of the size of each grain of clay is nearly 100 times smaller than one grain of sand. For the organic matter, to produce those aggregates to transfer nutrients across soil, more surface area needs to be covered to make those connections, meaning more organic matter needs to exist. Think of it like a house. It might take 5 gallons of paint to paint the outside of a house, but 20 gallons of paint to do the inside because each room has its own walls. Now take that times, in this case, 100. Since organic matter takes time to build up, clay soils can be significantly more work to develop into productive soil. The last kind of technical-ish area I really want to focus on, or at least touch base on, is the carbon to nitrogen ratio. So where does new organic material come from in your garden? if you wanted to do it without those massive inputs. It would be from dying plants, right? Or animal droppings or whatever it might be. Whether it's your tomato plants or cover crops, these plants die off and start to decompose back into the soil. I'm not talking just about the stalks, but even the root systems as well, all of which add new material for the soil biology to break down and absorb. That said, a corn husk is going to take longer time to break down than the root system in your arugula, right? Not all organic matter is equal, and I don't mean that negatively. Much like everything else we've talked about, the value in organic matter tends to be in having a variety of it. 
The ratio of the amount of a residue's carbon to the amount of its nitrogen influences nutrient availability and the rate of decomposition. The ratio, usually referred to as the CN ratio, as in carbon-nitrogen, may vary from around 15 to 1 carbon to nitrogen for young plants to between 50 to 1 and 80 to 1 for the old straw of crop plants to over 100 to 1 for sawdust. For comparison, the C to N ratio, the carbon to nitrogen ratio of soil organic matter is usually in the range of around 10 to 1 to 12 to 1, and the carbon to nitrogen ratio of soil microorganisms is around 7 to 1. So I know that was a lot of numbers, but it's all going to come back in a second. The carbon to nitrogen ratio of residues is really just another way of looking at the percentage of nitrogen. A high carbon to nitrogen ratio has a low percentage of nitrogen, whereas the low carbon to nitrogen ratios have relatively high percentages of nitrogen. Crop residues usually average around 40% carbon, and this figure doesn't change much from plant to plant. On the other hand, nitrogen content varies greatly depending on the type of plant and its stage of growth. Young, smaller plants and root systems are able to break down more quickly than, again, corn husks, which means it is able to pump that nitrogen back into the soil quickly for new crops. When there's too much of those high C to N organic materials, think like straw bales, wood chips, and so on, the microorganisms in the soil will start to draw nitrogen from surrounding soils to stay alive, limiting the amount of nitrogen available in the soil. Generally, as long as the residues you are using break down, stay under 40 to 1, you won't be losing any nitrogen, and under 20 to 1, you'll be bringing in new nitrogen. For context, most manures, cover crops, and composts are in the teens and slightly lower, so that's why they are actually typically used as soil amendments, specifically in terms of nitrogen. When any organic material is added to soil, it decomposes relatively rapidly at first. Later, when only resistant parts, for example, straw stems high in lignin, are left, the rate of decomposition decreases greatly. This means that although nutrient availability diminishes each year after adding a residue to the soil, there are still long-term benefits from adding organic materials. This can be expressed by using a quote-unquote decay series. In other words, crops in a regularly manured field get some nitrogen from manure that was applied in past years. So if you're starting to manure a field, somewhat more manure will be needed in the first year than will be needed in years 2, 3, and 4, and so on to supply the same total amount of nitrogen to a crop. After some years, you may need only half of the amount used to supply all the nitrogen needs in your first year. However, it is not uncommon to find farmers who are trying to build up high levels of organic matter, actually overloading their soils with nutrients, with negative effects on crop quality and the environment. So with all this information, what can we do to help our soil be all that it can be? We can compost, we mulch our soil because nature hates bare soil, we provide cover plants, we plant understory plants that have similar needs to the trees we are covering, Think back to those fungal ratios. Which low-growing plants are common in the same areas 
as those plants that you're covering. They're meant to grow together if they're in nature that way. This is the coevolutionary trait that is nature creating efficiencies that we had talked about in the last episode. Providing this long-term co-planting allows deep roots to supply exudates, helping to improve soil aeration, structure, and ability to hold water. Further, these cover plants help prevent compaction in the soil, provide balanced nutrients, and reduce risk of disease. Anyways, natural nitrogen fixers like vetch and clove are often used as cover crops to protect soils from desertification and erosion, carbon capturing, and to provide nitrogen. Further, they are great pollinator feeders, which, if you're a beekeeper like me, is really great. Bare soil is always bad and increases water runoff while also reducing the health of the soil. Very quickly, in fact. Mulching feeds back into the soil and can be done with tons of different materials. You can use straw, wood chips, even pine tree wood chips, cardboard, heavy leaf collections, chop and drop plants, and I'm sure there are tons of other ones that I've never tried. If you've never used wood chips as a mulch to protect your soil, a foot of mulch will break down into about 4 inches of actual soil. The thing is though, soil doesn't build quickly. You're not going to get black gold soil in a year or two. It takes years to build a few inches of healthy, heavy soil with intense complex systems in place within the soil. If you're working really hard at it, and including a lot of these types of inputs, you can build a few inches in maybe five to eight years, and that still requires, like I said, a lot of inputs. It's one thing to throw down a bunch of mulch. It's another to not only get the mulch in place, but to get plants and to build up soil from below that mulch and to make the new wood chips part of the ecosystem. That takes time. Now, I want to circle back really quickly to this idea of cover plants. What I said and not what you might have heard, which is cover crops. Many folks are familiar with the use of clover, vetch, snow peas, and other various plants that are used to cover your garden during the fall and to protect the soil and add nitrogen. And they're great. Other plants like comfrey and sorghum sandgrass, as well as things like sunflowers, help not only break up compacted soil, but create organic matter quickly to turn into topsoil. The thing that is important to understand when it comes to using these cover crops to build biomass is that it is important to remember that for all organic matter to break down quickly and in a healthy way, we don't want to just simply till the new matter into the soil, or the bacteria will flourish to meet the new organic matter decomposing, and ultimately the amount of bacteria will remain unsustainable, just like with tilling, and can create numerous problems in your soil. As long as there is other organic material to help the plant material break down, and that's where it's important for grazing animals to get involved in your topsoil development, if you can. Further, it's important to consider your goals. Are you trying to build nitrogen or protecting the soil? Is it about weed or erosion control? Are you trying to break compaction or add diversity to your entire garden or farm? Maybe all of the above. Probably all of the above. Either way, depending on what your focus is, your options will be slightly different. So let's start with the short fall cover croppings, meaning places with short falls and long winters. Winter rye and other cereals are great cover crops because they grow quickly and will help limit nitrogen leaching. 
interseeding, that is, planting while another crop is already in place, to extend the season for your cover crops will be really helpful in this process as well. The most common cover crop is probably the clover family, which usually means red, white, crimson, strawberry, and bursine clover. Clovers are great as a nitrogen fixer, adding up to 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre. Further, clover works great for grazing, although it can create some bloat in animals if that becomes a large part of their diet, and it is shade tolerant, which is great for transitional soils, say, in tree stands where you may be coppicing trees and you're trying to build the soils in the shade for rotational grazing goats, cows, and so on. Red, white, and strawberry clovers are hardy to zone 4, meaning they overwinter extremely well in most of the country, whereas bursim and crimson are typically used as winter or summer annuals because they are hardy to zone 7. However, bursim and crimson are more drought hardy than perennials. Generally, you won't cover crop with just clover, especially if this is just pasture land, partly because it's expensive and partly because you want some diversity within the landscape. Lastly, the added benefit of bursine clover, which is what I primarily use, is that it is more tolerant of lower pH soils, unlike most clovers. Peas are another legume that do a great job of fixing nitrogen, up to 150 pounds an acre. Cow pea and Austrian peas are the ones you typically see as cover crops, and they're generally an annual. They're winter hardy to about zone 7. Typically, Austrian is planted in the fall for a winter cover crop, and cow pea is planted in the spring. The added benefit of peas is that they break down quickly, returning that nitrogen that they've fixed from the air quickly back into the soil from the decaying plant matter. Winter cereals are also great at scavenging nitrogen. Winter rye is a common first cover crop because it's easy to grow and doesn't ask for much, but barley, wheat, and triticale are all great at building soil, stopping erosion, and they're great for foraging animals. Further, they break down slowly so they sit and protect the soil long after they die, and have the added bonus of being harvested if you really want to. Spring cereals are pretty much the same as the winter cereals, again, rye, wheat, triticale, barley, and oats. Again, they can forge nitrogen from deep in the soil and have quick growth which helps smother weeds, limit erosion, and provide that mulch if you keep them on site and just cut them down because they break down slowly. In terms of summer annuals, sorghum sudan grass and buckwheat are the most common. These are used primarily for weed suppression on soils that are resting with the added benefit of being inedible for your animals. These will die off in the winter but make sure you to cut the buckwheat down before it seeds or it will come back the following year and will pretty much be like a weed. Or, alternatively, you can just let them reseed and be a part of your landscape. In terms of winter annuals, radishes, turnips, and annual ryegrasses are your most common cover crops. They grow quickly, do a great job of scavenging nitrogen, breaking up compaction, crowding out weeds, and can be grazed by your chickens, goats, and so on. These will die down from most northern areas and need to be controlled in zone 6 and higher. Generally, these different cover crops are used together, intercropped with your primary plants you're trying to grow, or in succession. Each of these offer unique benefits for your soil, and likely some are better fits than others, given what your goals are. For me personally, I'm working with a low pH soil, 
in a slightly damp location with a lot of shade and have a bunch of chickens, sheep, ducks, and turkeys, which forage most of their food. So developing cover crops that can help sustain them so that for eight months of the year at least, they eat little if any store-bought food is my ideal situation. Like I said, bursium clover is one of the primary plants that I use, but I also include cowpeas, ryegrass, and other native grasses and flowers. So there's a lot you can do, and I'm always experimenting. So let's move on to crop rotation, which impacts your cover crop decisions, particularly in your annual garden. Crop rotation is a really great tool because it helps keep pests from building up over multiple years at your site for various crops. Further, the more residues your crops leave in the fields, the greater the populations of soil microorganisms, meaning the larger variety of residues from different plants can be left in one site, which will increase the health of your soil. And like we said before, some residues take years to break down. So by rotating crops every, say, five to seven years, allows the soil to take in all of these different residues, creating healthy, dynamic soil communities. A few quick thoughts on crop rotation planning, just to get you in the logic of the process. If you plant, say, clover your first year to build your soil, follow it with something that will quickly use that nitrogen, say, tomatoes. The second and third year go with something that will need less nitrogen to give the soil time to recover, while still interplanting something that's nitrogen fixing. So you might want to plant, say, carrots or radishes with another clover. Stay away from rotating plants in the same family. So in this example, you don't want to put potatoes after tomatoes because that might keep those pests alive that require something in that family. Try to include at least one or two deep-rooted crops. So, for example, carrots or radishes or parsnips or sunflowers or pumpkins, squash, and even watermelon, which can help nutrients come up from the subsoil. So for this quick example... Imagine five beds where each one cycles the following one. For your first bed in the first year, you might have sweet corn followed by a hairy vetch or a winter rye cover crop. Year two might be pumpkins, winter squash, summer squash, or another squash like that followed by rye or oats as a cover crop. Year three could be tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, or something like that followed by a vetch or rye cover crop. Year four might be crucifers, greens, legumes, carrots, and onions, and other green leafy type vegetables, followed by a rye crop. And year five might be oats and red clover or buckwheat, followed by a vetch or a rye cover crop. So the idea is that you're constantly adding new nitrogen and new materials to a soil, and while you're still always producing food, you're not constantly producing food that's requiring tons of nitrogen. So you give it multiple years of low nitrogen requirements and then include those once in a while heavy nitrogen feeders. So while the annuals might seem pretty simple, perennials become a little bit more complicated. How do you identify cover plants for your fruiting perennials, whether they're bushes, trees, or vines? The major key is to identify short, perennial, deep-rooted plants that want the same fungi ratio as your tree. Use compost to help the plant grow and continue to develop to its full size and make sure the plant grows to cover the surface. Try to use multiple various plants which will each benefit different years based on weather condition. Use biology, not a chemical from a box store, to tackle diseases and pests. 
So whatever pest you have, what's the natural predator? What keeps it in check in nature? Try to keep that conversation as a dialogue between you and nature, not that of you controlling nature. Now, can we try to use short-growing understory plants in our annual gardens? Intercropping, which I'd said before, is this practice of starting cover crops in annual gardens after the primary crop has already started growing so that it doesn't outcompete that primary crop, is done primarily on large monoculture farms, but it can have a place in a small garden or homestead with a variety of plants. Creating small rows where your tomatoes and other annuals can grow between these low-growing perennials allows you to limit soil disruption while limiting the challenges with wet, muddy spring plantings and the complex root systems in place can help in years when spring rains can mean a ruined crop. In dry seasons, the green cover will protect the soil from drying out and can reduce water use by 70%. Expect that these perennials will get beaten up. After all, they're being stepped on when you're doing plantings. It comes with the territory. Make sure that cover crop can handle it. So what are our options for perennial cover crops for annual gardens? where the fungi to bacteria ratio should be just around that one-to-one. -one. There are a number of different plants you can consider, things from creeping daisy to matted buckwheat to Virginia strawberry to creeping thyme and cowslip and oregano, creeping sedum and vetch, one of my personal favorites, while even the clovers can often be treated as a perennial. When we plant perennials versus annual cover crops, the perennials build bigger root systems and spend less time long-term building those root systems. What we get in return over the long-term is that they are pushing more nutrients into the soil. Up to 40% of the energy created from photosynthesis, they are aerating deeper into the soil, and they come with the added benefit that it's less work for us over the long-term. To circle back to the conversation earlier about how we have destroyed our soil, while on average, conventional farming erodes the soil at around 1.54 millimeters a year, returning it to nature allows soil to grow at 0.01 millimeters a year. And no-till farming using annual and perennial cover crops actually increases soil content at 0.08 millimeters a year. There are two interesting facts here. The first is that I know that it seems wrong that farming land in a no-till fashion actually build soil faster than nature, but it's been documented in over 200 studies, and it's a glimmer of hope for all of us. The second is that the average loss from traditional plow farming at one millimeter a year would clear roughly two to three feet in 500 to a thousand years, which is about the entire amount of topsoil that even the most rich soils might have. Part of the challenge of maintaining soils today is that the nutrient cycle has been completely eliminated from its natural state. Traditionally, folks lived close to their food. This meant that they grew the plants, they consumed them, and the nutrients returned to the soil locally. Yes, I'm talking about shit. Even up to the 18th and 19th century, shit was literally shipped back to farmers to be used for farming. I know that sounds ridiculous and made up, but it's 100% true and you should definitely look into it. Anyways, once industrialization happened and urban cities grew exponentially in a short period of time, cities developed more modern sewage systems and the need to ship shit away became less of an issue. 
modern fertilizers were taking hold, so farmers were conveniently replacing human manure with synthetic fertilizers, which I totally get seeing as a huge upgrade. Over the past 50 years, we have taken this more recent industrial model and put it on speed, and our increased meat consumption has created a secondary shit market, which has created countless water safety issues, dead zones and waterways, among other issues. If you want a first-hand take on the issues facing people regarding this secondary shit market, Dixieland of the Proletariat's episode, Wilbur's Revenge, is a great upfront experience working on a factory farm. So, we have two seemingly opposite issues going on here, right? Massive animal farms have a massive output problem, while massive grain farmers have a massive input problem. We have spent some time talking about how great some cover crops are for things like nitrogen fixing, but for context, an acre of tomato plants pulls over 100 pounds of nitrogen, 20 pounds of phosphorus, and 100 pounds of potassium out of that soil for that production. For context, your best case scenario with clover is just about 100 pounds of nitrogen produced in a year for that soil. The soil needs one year to recover from producing those tomatoes just to regain its nitrogen. On the flip side of this, a typical dairy farm brings in almost 80% of its feed from outside of the farm, and 60% of the nitrogen in the feed given to the cows is excreted as waste on the farm. Way more than that land can use or absorb, leading to runoff and leaching problems. By trying to create linear systems for growing food, we are operating the opposite way of nature, and further, by shipping foods across the globe, we are creating imbalances in regards to soil health where the loss of organic soil matter is being supplemented with chemical fertilizers. By creating those localized networks of farmers where they are able to specialize but retain connections with other local farms to keep these nutrient networks in place, we will be able to create sustainable nutrient flows for healthier soils. So I want to go back to the conversation about global warming again, particularly the fact that currently because of the destruction of the complex systems on the planet on a massive scale, we are currently in an entropic state, losing 10% of the energy from the sun. When we look at building soil, we are harnessing the plants and the organic matter from animals to build the soil for new plants. We are trapping the energy in the plants within the soil. All of the life in the soil comes from our ability to retain the energy from the sun. And in this way, in building soil, we are building the foundation for a sustainable planet. Even if that soil does not provide food, it provides the necessary storage of energy for the planet's survival. This is why cover crops are so impactful. It keeps the sun's energy in the soil and provides the framework for all biological life in the soil. So let's keep talking about shit. Specifically, pasture fields and the shit that happens in them, literally and figuratively. All of us are familiar with the image of the local farm. A cow is nestled on the edge of a wooden fence, slowly chewing some cud. There are a few cows in the distance, but they don't seem to have a care in the world. You imagine that cow stands there every afternoon to watch the cars pass by during rush hour and catch a breeze on a hot summer day. Well, the cow's relationship with that field is pretty complicated. Not in the way your uncle and his girlfriend slash ex-sister-in-law is, but it's still not quite as simple as it might seem. There are, generally speaking, 
three primary ways that cow eats the grass on the fields. Continuous grazing is when the cow stays in the same four gates his entire life and eats some of it at a time, and that grass grows fast enough that he never kills at all. This is what most people are picturing in this scenario. Second, there's a slow rotation grazing most folks are familiar with. The cow spends a spring season in one part of the field, then they get moved over to another part of the field for the summer, and so on and so on. Last is adaptive high stock density grazing, which is closer of what you think of when you envision bison roaming the Midwest, trying not to get shot by poachers. There's a shit ton of them close together, not trying to die by being outside of the herd, and they're all eating in one spot for a little while, then they move as a group to another spot once the first one is depleted. Using the last type of farming, what we can just call intensive grazing, organic matter in soil increases at twice the rate of that idyllic pasture we all imagine. That cow is slacking off. Not only are they doubling the amount of organic matter in the soil, they're getting that organic matter deeper into the soil at a rate of three times of traditional continuous grazing. Grazing as a general rule increases grass production. In traditional grazing, it increases production to 44%, and intensive grazing increases production up to 138% based on a study by the state of New York. The reason this works is pretty simple. By controlling what the animals, in this case cows, can eat, you're creating what's called the buffet effect. While in a larger paddock, the cows might pick and choose their favorite grasses to eat, and this can lead to some spots that are overgrazed and some spots that are undergrazed, both of which can have problems for your field. When they have a smaller area, they have to eat everything, including the weeds they don't want to necessarily eat, even though they are nutritious. Further, by creating dense clusters of animals, you're forcing the animals to move less, which helps them reduce the amount of caloric usage that they have, meaning every bite, less of it gets used for moving around to find other bites. Additionally, by creating these dense clusters of animals, they're able to stumble down the grasses that they might not eat, or they really don't want to eat, or that may be poisonous to them, and that helps protect the soils and cover the seeds that may be dropping as they chew. By also creating more short-term spaces for your animals to graze, you're extending the grow time for the grasses before they are grazed again, increasing the paddock's capacity to grow the grass as well. Now, for most of the United States, you need between 1 and 5 acres of land to maintain 1,000 pounds of animal. For context, that's like a pretty small cow. One acre is likely going to be the person doing intensive grazing in a moist, warm climate something like coastal New England. By getting more productivity out of smaller spaces, we're able to keep food production closer to home and in a way that mimics nature in the natural process. By understanding the relationship between the sun, the organic matter in the soil, the plants, and the animals, we can see how all of these things relate to one another and ultimately how each of them depends on the others to be successful in efficiently converting energy into meaningful life. As stewards of our patch of land, whether it's a planter or acreage, it becomes evident how we can help develop sustainable, self-supporting systems with limited long-term input from us, while also creating a more habitable community. Hopefully, at this point, if you didn't know anything about gardening, you're feeling fairly confident in understanding the foundation of horticulture in general. 
if you did have a decent background, maybe something new came out of this. Everything cited in this episode is linked in the description of the episode, so go check them out if you'd like to learn even more about soil biology, as we've just scratched the surface. If you enjoyed this content, go give us a review on iTunes, as it shows other people that what we're doing is interesting and valuable, and gives us more listeners, and ultimately in the future as we get guests, that'll be a huge driver in getting those prospective guests. As always, thanks for listening. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.